Welcome to the Thinking God Podcast, where I try to find hope in the dark corners and through the bright windows of the world. My guest today is John Steingard, who for more than a decade was part of the Christian band Hawk Nelson, where he served as lead vocalist and lead guitarist until his departure two years ago, when he announced that he no longer believed in God, which created some headlines, obviously. But Steingard has not become an evangelistic atheist. Instead, he is a man on a spiritual search who is now expressing his artistic energy in video and visual art. I liked his relaxed honesty along with the fact that he is still open to the idea of spirituality and where he finds it. But one sure. of the reasons I, I like your story and I find it interesting um, is because your spiritual path has not really been jumping from like a somewhat Christian evangelical musician to a fire-breathing atheist. I, I tr I've tried to yeah, avoid no. people who become go from one evangelism to another on this podcast. I'm trying sure, to get people sure, who are thinking yeah. about that. I mean, I kind of think of it as like sometimes people ch people change teams but remain very fundamentalist in their thinking. Right. And so, and so uh, you know, I, yeah, I've definitely tried to avoid that. Well, I've listened to some of your podcasts and some of your interviews, um, and I, I find that uh, you don't seem to be addicted to any sort of certainty. Is that a fair evaluation? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, I think that's fair. And I've you know, changed my mind about many things many times. So, yeah. yeah. I've often referred to certainty as probably one of the biggest golden calves of modern religion. Uh, why do you think people are so obsessed with being totally certain about matters of spiritual things? Uh, I think that I think that uncertainty is uncomfortable. I think that people much prefer to feel that they have a firm grip on the world and reality and their life and um, it provides a lot of comfort especially during uncertain times and um, I think the idea that there's really really big things that we don't know uh, is scary honestly and I, I think it's hard to face yeah I was raised a little bit I will talk I'm gonna talk about your childhood in a second here um, sure with uh, dad on staff, a deep-fried Southern Baptist, like <laughs> late 50s, early 60s, when really the good people were church people and there was everybody else. Yeah, I, I definitely, I don't think anyone ever explicitly said anything like that to me, but I definitely came up with that sort of sense that I picked up on, yeah. Right. They were a little more subtle by the time you came along. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, you know, I, I think that anybody who says that out loud can recognize the problem pretty quickly, right? But it, it it seeps into the way that you think about other people and the world, and and well, definitely kids kids pick up on it when hey, they're coming. You lived out. in Nashville long enough to know that there were people who were still saying that that didn't didn't understand that that was not something to say. So. Yeah, yeah, and and in recent times, there's definitely been um, oh yeah a polarization that's happened that that has made people a little more willing to say stuff like that, yeah. <laughs> well, it's taken me decades to kind of deconstruct some of this dogmatism and uh, stuff. I'm, I'm pleased to see you got there quicker. What what <laughs> tradition were you raised in? What What's your earliest memory, memories about being told about God and that kind of thing? Yeah, so, I mean, my dad's a pastor and uh, pastored in the sort of 
charismatic evangelical sort of vein of Christianity. Um, there's a, a group of churches that were a, uh, a part, uh, I guess it's a denomination called the Vineyard. Oh yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, so my, I, I grew up in that, but then the churches that, that my dad was involved in and that my family was involved in um, were, were in Southern Ontario and they were part of this um, sort of movement that happened in the nineties that some people called the Toronto blessing. Oh, I remember that. And uh, so the, the laughter yeah, and so all that stuff. Yeah. Very, very, I mean, I mean, it was normal for me cause I was like, I was, I just grew up around that. Well, tell people um, what the Toronto blessing and people who don't know, cause I, I haven't heard anybody refer to that in a long time. Yeah. So it was, it was basically this, I mean, they would say move of the spirit that, hit a bunch of churches in the in southern ontario in the 90s and it was associated with like um yeah people being slain in the spirit people i mean definitely speaking in tongues claims of healings um a, a lot of sort of just uh, i mean there was like roaring like lions barking like dogs there was like a lot of laughter you know, laughter kind yeah. of stuff yeah yeah, you know, um, and, you know, you might hear people say people being drunk in the spirit, you know, like that, you know, like the Holy Spirit manifesting itself in all these ways. And, um, you know, what exactly was going on there? I mean, I have ideas, but I don't actually know. Um, well, how did I you just, process uh, that as a kid? Uh, I think that, I mean, it was 1992, I think, when that all started. So I would have been nine. Okay. Um, and so I think it was strange, but at that age, I was also sort of just accepting things as they were presented to me more or less. And so I think I just sort of went like, okay, this is like, this is, I mean, God's doing something, you know, I think that's how I interpret it. And, you know, and it's only later in retrospect that I look back and I'm like, there's some weird, weird stuff. <laughs> like, right. And then, and then also sort of like the perspective that I have now of like paying attention to what was happening in leadership and, you know, what, you know, asking the question, you know, what is, what is the fruit? And, and I'm sure that different people would answer that question differently and I don't want to be uncharitable, but I, I, I just know that for me personally, I, there were some, there were some things that happened during that time that were pretty hurtful and um and I, I i look back and i go like yeah i wonder how many people had experiences like mine uh so I, you know i i still have it a hard time unraveling all the layers of that period of time for sure but that was my that was my anyway that was my upbringing well that's in interesting because I, you know yeah. i covered some of that uh and I, the whole it was also an internal rift because remember, I don't know if you remember any of this, you were nine, but they sent, they asked John Wimber to come out and visit and evaluate because we we're getting so much criticism. Yep. And Wimber came out and basically said, I'm not so sure this, I see this as biblical. And that really caused it to get worse. I mean, yeah, uh, that was part of the, the drama is the, the, yeah, those, those churches left the vineyard. Um, and you know, my, my family was a part of the churches that left. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and even within, yeah, I mean, even within churches that were leaving, there was disagreements and yeah, there, there's, there's, there was some tension that went along with it for sure. Well, what, what's some of the positive stuff that you could remember that you've carried from your tradition? And then we'll, we'll talk about the baggage after that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I, I do think, 
that in general, um, and I've come to grips with this in the, you know, through the last couple years of this journey I've been on, that just by by virtue of being raised in Christianity and raised in the West, there's just a lot about my perspective that's difficult to extricate from Christianity. I mean, Christianity is so influential in Western culture that just by by virtue of being Western and raised in a Western home, there's just a lot about my outlook on life that's um, influenced by Christianity, and that's just pretty hard to avoid. <laughs> Uh, so, so I do, I do feel like it's difficult to sort of like turn my gaze on Christianity and say that it's, that it's all bad. I mean, it's a part of me in the same way that like, you know, I grew up in Canada. I live in the U S now. Canada is not my home, but it is my heritage. Uh, it's where I come from. And I feel similarly about Christianity. I'm like, you know, I, I don't call myself a Christian at this point, but, um, it's where I come from. It's the tradition that I come out of, and um, and I think I think it would be uncharitable for me to say that it's all bad. Yeah. Have, have there been any pieces of that that have been harder to shake? I mean, you're talking about you recognize. Are there pieces of that heritage that you think that keep popping up in your head when something comes along? Um, I mean, I think there was a period of time there where I was like, oh, I'm glad I was raised with Christian morals. And then as I started thinking about that more, I'm like, well, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> because because I, a lot of people say that. Like, I know a lot of people that are like, yeah, I, you know, I'm not really religious, but I send my kids to Christian school because I want them to be raised with Christian morals. And I'm just like, okay, the more I think about that, like, please explain that to me. Because, like, you know, being good neighbors, for instance, and, like, treating other people the way you would want to be treated, that's not a, that's not a Christian thing. I mean, that that idea shows up in every major, you know, religious tradition in the world. So Christianity doesn't own that. Um, I, I think there was a period of time where I where I, I, I thought like, OK, well, like a lot of the good moral thinking that I feel like I have comes from Christianity. But I, I think I've come to just feel that a lot of the good things that I inherited from Christianity are are Christian expressions of things that are just good, right? Like I, I think, so for instance, like uh, treating others how you, you would like to be treated. Like I think that's actually a, a fundamental idea that's somewhat needed in some way to, to have a society. And so I think, you know, the expression of that idea that I inherited is Christian, but I don't think it's the only expression. So, yeah, I, I, I sometimes struggle to answer the question, as you can tell, of like, what are the good things about Christianity that you've been, right. that you've come a, a long, away with? Because I feel like some of the good things that I inherited from Christianity are Christian expressions of, of things that aren't explicitly Christian, if that makes sense. It does, and I, I think the, the the thing you talked about, there are those things that are good are universal. I mean, you can drop somebody, even you take something as, as you know, biblically spelled out as the fruit of the Spirit and go into a Hindu village and start talking about those things, and it's going to resonate with everybody there. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's not, uh, a, it's yeah, not a, you know, a dogmatic sort of, somebody's brought a Bible in on you, it's just those peace, patience, joy, gentleness, kindness, love, those things are not, there's not a patent on those things. 
Yeah, and if you even explore like Buddhism and Taoism, especially, those are two Eastern philosophies that I'm really partial to. <clears throat> they both emphasize a lot of the things that you just said. And, and um, seeing, seeing those ideas through the lens of a different culture by studying those two traditions has been super interesting to me. Um, and, and I mean, honestly, qu quite often, I think people associate good moral virtue with Christianity because they just, they just don't know anything else or, right. you know, or, or the only expressions they're familiar with of other faith traditions are caricatures. Um, boy, boy, that's, that's absolute true. So, I mean, that's just, that, that's sort of where my thinking has been on, on that stuff. Yeah. Well, from my erosion and deconstruction, I call it deconstruction, demolition and drilling to the core of the earth and swimming in the magmas where I'm sort of, um, <laughs> sure. scum is that I think one of the reasons early on, particularly when you begin to think some of this doesn't resonate with me, you, you don't want to throw everything under the bus and think, man, I wasted all these years on something. So you do go to those phrases like you mentioned, like, well, I'm glad I got this good moral outlook. I'm glad I got this, you know, family thing. I mean, you try to find some way to, to, to move on without completely just, you know, burning all the years and all the stuff you've done before. At least that's been my experience this yeah, early yeah. on was, I mean, I, I, I realized this, but man, I hate to, to say, you know, all these things were, all this time was wasted. Mm -hmm. was, I do, go ahead. I do feel like just on that point, I, I do feel like I've had a renewed appreciation and interest in the, in Jesus and the figure of Jesus and both the historical Jesus as he may have been. And also the idea of Jesus you know, as as he's depicted in the Gospels and as he's thought of as a figure within Christianity, like like when I when I read the Gospels now, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, John a little bit less so, but I just I just see this overwhelming concern for the poor, for the needy. I mean, Matthew, I think it's Matthew twenty five, where Jesus like explicitly you know, is depicted as saying, like, basically, your fate is intertwined with the fate of those around you that are needy. You know, he basically says, you know, that that passage, you know, I was hungry and you fed oh, me. Oh, absolutely. I was naked and you clothed me. And, like, th there's nothing in there about, like, um, you know, have the right doctrine and you'll enter the kingdom of God. There's nothing in there about like, oh, pray, pray a prayer and have a personal relationship with me, you know, air quotes, personal relationship with me. Right. And and that'll that'll get you into the kingdom of God. It's all a concern for how we treat those that have less power and influence and affluence than we do. And I'm really inspired by that. And I do think there are certain Christian traditions that have emphasized that aspect of Jesus and the Bible and the gospel. And, and I, I, I really value that. Like I, I know people who are doing good work in the world because they're motivated by their faith and the example they see in Jesus. And so I, I look at that and I, I, I'm glad we have those people, you know, I'm glad there are people expressing their faith in those ways. Um, yeah, I, I, I just, I just don't, well, first off, I don't know that we can say for sure that any 
you know, exactly what in the Gospels is accurate, but, you know. Well, you know, I, we, before we get past that, that's that's one of those passages that I always have camped out on, and also have always been baffled that evangelicals who are so black and white on so many things don't want to read that in black and white, because it's the only place in all of the New Testament where Jesus sets up a demarcation between who's following him and who's not. And the group that is, they ask them the same question, and you've heard all these sermons and teachings and stuff, but the group that is, their question is, well, when did we do these things? They were just doing it. They were yeah. helping people around them without knowing it. And um, Well, I think it's interesting, too, just to add to that point, that there's only there's only one time in the Gospels that I'm aware of where someone explicitly and specifically says, how do I enter the kingdom of God? And, and it's the rich man. Right. And, and Jesus answers, sell all you have and give it to the poor. That's his answer. And, and, and the rich man doesn't want to do that. And so he's disappointed by that answer. And, you know, there's that famous line that, you know, it's easier for, the, uh, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Right. And, or, or kingdom of heaven, because I think that story's in Matthew. Kingdom of heaven, yeah. And Matthew always says kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say kingdom of God. Um, and so, and you've heard the same so, gymnastics I've heard trying to explain that verse away too. Oh, that, that there's a gate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That there was a gate. Yeah. So just for anyone listening, if you ever hear people say, oh, like, well, he was talking about that, this gate that physically existed. No, he wasn't. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's not like. And John, I've also heard actual, dozens of sermons about the. Yeah. Dozens of sermons about the rich man who walked away. So they said, "Well, Jesus just wanted him to say he would do it. He didn't really want him to give all this stuff." I mean, I've heard it's just so many crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. I mean, the thing. Here's one thing that I, I pick up on really quickly now. It's like there's a Bible verse. It seems to say a thing, but then you ask certain evangelicals in particular, "Hey, what about this Bible verse?" And they'll find a way to tell you that it means the exact opposite of what it seems to mean. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and they'll have all this stuff to back it up. And, and, and you're left with being like, wait, really? Like, do I really think that the person that wrote this was trying to communicate the exact opposite of what they seem to be, you know, communicating? You know? Like very poorly, that, very like, poorly written. If that's the case, <laughs> well, it's, it's like the verses. I mean, so the the big ones for me, since a lot of the ones that were big in my journey were the passages about women. So, like second or first Timothy two talks about how women can't teach and how they should, uh, you know. And I think, and I think it's like Second Corinthians. I can't remember the passage there that talks about women should learn. In, you know, in prayer and supplication, submit to their husbands. Remain, and remain quiet. And, and remain quiet. I think yep. that's Second Timothy, or First yep. Timothy. Yeah, yep. so, uh, yeah, I mean, those ones I remember asking people, because I actually, I actually grew up in traditions where women in leadership were at least somewhat allowed and encouraged. Yeah, the Pentecostal and, tradition was always way ahead in that. Yeah, yeah, and I like, you know, I applaud that. Uh but but I also ask like how exactly are you getting there, um, you know, with your interpretation of some of these scriptures? And I, I never found that their interpretation was 
very convincing. Well, you, you, since you grew up a pastor's kid, there's a, the tribe there that we, how many sermons did you hear? Not necessarily from your dad, I don't want you to throw your dad, but how many sermons over the years did you hear somebody say that scripture is 100% inerrant and true and it means what it says and then they'll read a passage and go, now I'm going to tell you what it means. Yeah. It's like, wait a minute, you just said it means what it says and now you're going to tell me what yeah. it means? Yeah, the the Bible is clear is a verse that many people have heard many times and and it's anything but. I think it's fascinating and I, I actually think that I have more appreciation for scripture now than I used to. Um it's just in a different way for sure. Did you grow up during the whole purity stuff? Uh Oh yeah. Because that church teaching on sexuality has done quite a bit of damage. and there, I know a lot of adults have spent their entire lives trying to shake sort of the bitter, negative sexual messages they heard in church. Yeah, and I, I think, I, I actually, I think a lot of my Christian friends that, that are still Christian, um, that's one aspect of sort of my generation's upbringing that, that even a lot of my Christian friends are like, oh yeah, that was pretty awful. <laughs> So. Right. Well, they, my experience, and it was a generation and a half, maybe even more your dad's generation, but is it, it what it taught kids who grew up in the church was how to be really good liars. Hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, maybe. I, I think. I think what it taught even more than that is is that I mean, in general, it it gave people a sense that sexuality was was dirty and impure, just sexuality writ large, right? Like, right, absolutely. Um, but because we're human, we all noticed that we still had sexual desire and sexual urges and sexual thoughts. And and so I think it just heaped a lot of shame on everybody being like, you know, holding up this standard that was impossible to, at least on our interior, live up to, right? Absolutely. And so... And so, you know, for a lot of people I know, it just it, it causes people's normal sexual, you know, the, the normal aspect of their sexuality to go underground and then to be potentially expressed in ways that are, uh, you know, that are that are harmful to themselves and others. I mean, I mean, I it, it's just. If. If sexuality can't be expressed in a healthy, natural, normal way, if it's repressed, I, I just think that that leads to so many of the same problems that purity culture rails against. Like, I, I think it's a, oh, a self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy. Exactly, yeah. and I think we're saying the same thing. That's what I meant by the kids, the church kids particularly, though, had to sublimate those urges or at least pretend to and oh, go and say, yeah. you know, hey, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm I'm doing these great things. And yet you still, now you're seeing a lot of the people who are even leaders in that saying, no, I was still sleeping with my girlfriend doing all these things. But I was at in public pretending to be this virtue, which set up the what's wrong with me thing that has been, a, I think, one of the cornerstones of uh, people struggling that have stayed away from a lot of faith traditions is, is uh, people put out a, a picture of something that's a complete fantasy and they think, well, what's wrong with me that I can't live up to this fantasy that everybody else seems to be getting to? Yeah, 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 I think that's, I think that's true. And I mean, I'm not an expert in uh, purity culture or, you know, sexuality in general, huh. but um, I just... From from what I've seen, 
sort of deconstructing that aspect of Christian culture in the in the 90s, or I should probably say evangelical culture, because it was most prevalent there. Right. Um, deconstructing that has been a gateway, I think, for a lot of people to ask deeper questions about their the faith traditions that they come from. Yeah. It, was, it was part of that sort of odd attempt, and this goes back a ways to sort of Christianize and create alternatives, especially entertainment for kids. Um, mm-hmm. I, remember, I don't know if you were a fan of the television show King of the Hill. Um, oh, I do. I, I never really watched it. You I may have seen the line, though, where yeah. Hank confronted the Christian rock band. And no, I haven't seen he said, uh, he said, uh, can't you see you're not making Christianity better? You're just making rock and roll worse. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. But I do remember South Park having an episode about a Christian band. They called it Jesus Plus One. <laughs> and yeah, I that. what's funny is there was a there was a Christian boy band called Plus One. And I, I actually knew those guys. Um because we had the same manager for a period of time and and I you know they actually sort of saw it as a badge of honor that South Park used them to make fun of Christian music. Well, good for so, them. Well, let's, yeah. let's let's hit that since you mentioned. When did you first get interested in performing music? Well, I grew up, I mean, like I, I grew up, you know, as we've talked about in the church and worship, you know, worship music was my entry into music in general. I just loved I just loved music and um, I started, you know, learning guitar early, uh, early on piano, drums. I got interested in kind of any instrument that was on stage at church. I was interested in learning. And so um, then in my in my high school years, I, I joined a couple of different bands. And then when I was 20, I joined this band, Hawk Nelson, as the guitar player. And they had just there were a bunch of friends of mine and they had just started touring in the U S and had just gotten a record deal. And so things were kind of taken off for them and, uh, they needed a guitar player. And so I, I joined and then that, I mean, I, I knew even in the moment that that was going to change the trajectory of my life. And it certainly did. So, I, so I was the guitar player for eight years and then uh, our singer left. And so then I, I, I moved over to the role of singer and was the singer for the next eight years. And, and then, um, yeah, so I was in the band for 16 years and and then sort of wound that period of my life down uh, just a, a couple of years ago. Do you still pick up your guitar? Do you still play at all? Or You know, I, I almost never. <laughs> I, just, I, uh, I, I got into doing film work and so, um, you know, I started playing with cameras a little more and guitars a little less. And, uh, and, and then... Um, and then just sort of life changes. I've got two kids, and life is full. And I just, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't do a lot of music stuff anymore. I want to talk to you about your creative stuff more in a minute. But I was at a lot of those original Jesus festivals, as they called them then. That was, um, and then you played at the Descendants some of those festivals where, you know, back to certainty was the rule of the day at those places. Um, how did yeah, you how did you know the other musicians respond to some of the stuff that seemed a little over the top religiously? Well, there's I mean, whenever you're talking about a live audience, like a crowd, there are there are certain dynamics at play and you see this in music, you see this in politics, you see this in preaching. Um there's the more conviction that you can put into whatever you're saying or singing or whatever the more it connects and 
And so the strongest and most certain and most, uh, sometimes you could say lowest common denominator versions of any idea will sometimes have the most punch. And so that's why you, you know, at these festivals, it's like the person that gets up and say, and that says, you know, this is a, this is a, a war for the hearts and minds of our young people. And, you know, like that kind of stuff, like that kind of stuff riles people up and resonates because we're, we're tribal creatures, you know? And so if you, you see that in, like I said, politics and in, 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 you know, religion, so I, I do think it feeds this sense of like nuance is not your friend, <laughs> and, and so and so I just I just think that that's that stuff floats to the top, you know, floats to the surface in in a way that can be unhelpful. But I don't I don't know how it could be different. I guess. <laughs> well, did y'all recognize it then? I mean, you sort of knew then that. I mean, while you there were doing always- it. There was always stuff that I felt weird about, um, but, you know, I was a, a Christian, a believer. I really did believe, like, since leaving Christianity, I've had some people accuse me of, like, spending my my time in Christian music lying about what I thought. And I'm like, no, I, I, I believed it. I really did. Um, but even, the, even, even still, there were things that made me feel weird. Um, like, I remember... Um, I remember sometimes feeling weird about the the way that Christianity felt commodified in Christian music. I mean, and and to be fair, I was participating in that like, you know, I mean, nobody in my band was getting rich, but we were we were making a living. Um and so I, you know, I I I remember feeling uncomfortable sometimes with with certain displays of affluence or, or money, or, you know, you know, but it's hard to put your finger on exactly like, well, how much is too much? And it's like, it's, it's a difficult road to go down that one. But I also, I also just remember seeing preaching in styles that made me concerned, like, you know, very conviction laden, very guilt and shame oriented, like you should be doing better, you know, like, you know, that kind of stuff. I, I remember just feeling uncomfortable with the tone of some of the preaching that I encountered. But at the same time, I also encountered people that were really wonderful and full of grace and, and you know, inspiring people. So it's, it was certainly a mixed bag. Well, I think the expectation, I, just talking about the whole CCM industry, you know, before there was even such a thing, it was sort of a wild west with, you know, it started with uh, as far back as, you know, Larry Norman and Cliff Richard and later yeah. Daniel. Before there was ever a business side to pressure people, they were doing kind of what they wanted to do. And then the big companies sort of sniffed out a little profit ideas and bought up most of the labels and everything declined so rapidly. I, I watched just the creative level in the 70s from probably 74 or 5 to the 80s just really take a nosedive. Now, to be fair... You know, a lot of music is sort of pre-programmed drivel. I mean, it's just a smaller percentage. But, yeah, but uh, I think there the, was some interesting stuff in the '90s, actually. There was, but but, they, but yeah. those, but they were they were sort of they were fringy. They weren't getting the kind. At, at one point, you know, when you had the, the real labels were really putting money behind it, and there was that real big giant Christian uh, um, bookstore scene that was pushing music, yep. and uh, there That's was actually, like you're saying, there was some money to be made. 
And uh, how did you how did you see the scene the Christian music scene change from the time you started? Uh, I know yeah. it seems like the only thing that and this is a casual observation because I don't listen to that, that genre, but it seems like the only thing left is worship music for people to record. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a really good observation. Um, when I started, it was 2004. And then when I left, it was like 2018-ish. Um, 2018, 19. So, so I remember early on, like, you mentioned something earlier. You said that there were Christian versions of other things. And I do feel like the band I was in benefited from that. Um, so, like, we were, you know, Hawk Nelson, we were sort of like, there were there would be parents that would buy their kids our, our album because their kid would want to listen to, like, Good Charlotte or Blink-182 or something like that. And they were right. like, okay, no, no. Don't listen to Good Charlotte or Blink One Eighty Two. Listen to Reliant K and Hawk Nelson. You know, right. Like that was the, that was sort of like the the thing that happened a lot. Um, so I do think there was this cultural reality of like we want Christian versions of secular bands, and so in the early two thousands that was definitely a thing. But I remember doing this tour with Toby Mac, who was a a member of DC Talk back in the day, which is like in my youth like pretty legendary. Um, and Toby in 2006 said to me, just watch where this is going. You know, CCM music is going to disappear basically. And it's going to be either Christians in general market, just making art, or it's going to be worship music and there's going to be nothing in the middle. And at the time I was like, that seems hard to imagine, but I think he was exactly right because it's, absolutely moved in that direction and 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 i think it's going to continue moving in that direction it's going to be like worship for the church and then if you want to make anything that's not explicitly worship you're just going to have to go and do it in general market you see bands like switchfoot and need to breathe um drew holcomb uh like there's a lot of art you know um ben rector um there's there's a, a lot of artists that that have embraced that um that path and, and, and have, you know, done great stuff. What's, I mean, I, I, what is your take on worship music is, it's, it's unfair to throw everything into one giant, you know, tent, but my casual experience of what I've heard, it, it just sounds so shallow and Jesus is my girlfriend and you yeah. could change one word and you'd have a really bad pop song that nobody would want to listen to. Right. I mean, I think to some degree it just, it is what it is because like it's very difficult to put complex or nuanced sort of theological ideas into song and have it, and have it sing well. You know, it's much easier, you know, it's much easier, uh, even if you listen to, I mean, look at it this way, turn on, you know, just regular top 40 radio and listen to the songs there. I mean, those, we've exited the religious sphere, right? But we're still talking about songs that typically are, I mean, not necessarily lyrically uh, deep, you know? So it's just like pop music in general. It's easier to connect large groups of people with simple ideas. 
and I just think that's true of music in general. Um, I think there are exceptions. Like I would look at jazz as an exception. Um, but you, you know, in general with pop music, I just think, I just think pop music has influenced worship music to a large degree. Um, and it's, music for the church has become more emotional and less liturgical. And I, I don't see that as good or bad, really. I think it just, it just, it just sort of is, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you in the sense that like, I don't find myself very interested in listening to it. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, I, I, again, I, it didn't, I don't find any, and, and to be fair, you know, the, the, the more um, traditional, at least in 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 my tradition, uh, the hymnal based music. There were a lot of terrible hymns. I mean, with bad theology and sure. bad music, and very difficult to sing. But and <laughs> I, I I I I see your point, though. There are some hymns that are incredibly powerful. Exactly. And part of the reason they're powerful, I I find, is is how long lasting they've been. Um. And they've entered, they've entered a, a part of our sort of cultural discourse that's different than like a modern worship song. It's more bedrock in some ways. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I think, I think, I think hymns are really powerful. Well, I mean, you listen, listen to Van Morrison sing "Be Thou My Vision," which may be the oldest English hymn, you know. And you, you you hear something there, you know. I mean, yeah. That that collection yeah. he did, hymns to the silence, is pretty strong mm. uh, collection. And of course, you know, you, you do have, like you mentioned, they're outliers. Uh, I was around when you know Dylan made his profession of faith, and Dylan yeah. never does but what Dylan wants to do. But he he makes his case, and then he goes out and does what he wants to do. Of course, we're I mean we're talking about Mount Rushmore. We're talking about Bob Dylan. I mean, this yeah, it's a different different discussion there with guys like that. But um, he never. And it was at the period where uh, they really wanted to promote him, you know, as a Christian artist. People really wanted to grab Dylan and drag him into the Christian bookstores, but he just wouldn't do it, you know. Yeah, the, uh, we saw a similar thing happen with Kanye West a couple of years ago, which was like super interesting for me to watch because I had already sort of left Christian music. Um, but I, you know, I don't know if you remember seeing this, but like he put out, put out this album called Jesus is Lord. Oh yeah. I saw an interview he did and, with it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and all of Christian music, I think was like, not sure exactly how to handle it. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was so interesting watching the response because people were like, on one hand, this is good, right? Is this good? And, 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 you know, people like were rightfully a little suspicious of him and i think other christian artists were like look i we've been over here in this space for years and years you can't just like arbitrarily decide to be a christian artist and be accepted um but but then i think I, those same people would see the tension of like well if someone wants to make christian music and they have an audience and they're writing things that we think are true then why wouldn't we celebrate that? Like I just I watched the whole internal tension go down, and it was it was super interesting. Well, it does kind of play into that larger concept of celebrity culture because I know I remember when Barry McGuire made a you know quote unquote profession of faith in the seventies. I mean we're talking about Eve of Destruction and all this stuff, and 
he did a couple of really wonky Crispin albums. <laughs> One's really? called Cosmic Cowboy, which is one of the strangest. You, gotta, you, gotta, you, did, you need to look that up just to see how weird it is. But there, there was this notion that, and it's always been true from, you go back to the crusade, Billy Graham crusade kind of big event, all the way back to Amy Jo McPherson, that they want to bring celebrities up to say, hey, you know, we've had this profession of faith and now we're, we're part of your group. And there's something about being able to sell that. Well, I do think there there tends to be a football team mentality. Like this this is our team. Look who's on our team. And something about that always rubbed me wrong. It always felt strange to me um to to look at the world through that lens of like my team versus their team. And and I, I to be fair, I think I, there's a lot of a lot of Christians that I know that see that tendency and, and, and dislike it as much as I do. Um, but definitely that's, it's, it's hugely prevalent in especially the American Christian, you know, evangelical church. Yeah, from a, from a tradition that follows a man who chose 12 people who really were looking for something to do, you know, it's, but you know, what you're saying though is true. I think I see a lot of folks that are asking some of the same questions you began to ask and some of the things I've asked over the years that are still within the fold because there's a lot of fear and they're, they can't quite make a break and yet they know where they are is, is not really um, resonating in, in, in their own spirit. Mm-hmm. And it's a mm-hmm. difficult place. I mean, it's a difficult place to be. I can remember at the beginning of my journey that being that place that, you know, there's, I mean, because I had, I mean, so many years of... Uh, the idea of certainty and apologetics yeah. and languages mm-hmm. and two seminaries and all these things that, you know, you, you, you've got the ammunition, now go use it. You know, and then you realize it's not ammunition. <laughs> That's not the point. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's, it, it uh, for me, it was like, I started to notice, like I started to notice my own moral sensibilities pointing in directions that were different than the culture I was a part of was pointing. So uh, an example is um, when the Supreme Court of the U.S. passed uh, the law um, allowing same-sex marriage. I remember just being like, well, I I feel like that's a good thing. Like, that seems like through the lens of history, that'll be a moment that will be celebrated in the future as promoting more equality and, and it just seems like a good thing to me. And, and I, I was curious why I immediately felt that because I, I was definitely raised to believe that homosexuality was wrong. Um, and the culture I was a part of definitely believed that. I mean, if I, at that time in the band, if I had publicly said, I support same-sex marriage, I would have lost my job. And case in point, Dan Hazeltine from Jars of Play basically had that exact experience. You know, he, he, I mean, if my memory is right, he, he got on a, he was in Australia when the law was passed. He casually tweeted a tweet in support of it before getting on a plane to fly back to the U.S. And by the time he landed in the U.S., their career was basically over. And, and so I remember watching that whole thing go down and being like, man, like something about this feels off to me and I, I couldn't place it. I, I mean, 
I'm not gay. Um, I, I didn't I have anyone at that time that was super close to me that was gay. But I still felt this like moral intuition that allowing people who are gay to marry who they want to marry felt like the right thing to do. And and so that that division between my instinct and my my moral intuitions versus the culture I was participating in that split that that was a that was a, a pretty pivotal moment for me despite not being gay myself and um and so then I just started seeing more and more of those things you know like more and more things like that and then you know as we've touched on in this conversation like as I started diving into like well people say that their reasons for believing what they believe are based on scripture. Well, like I, I'm going and reading these scriptures and I'm not always coming away with the same ideas that the culture I'm a part of promotes. And so where, where's that coming from? You know? So that was sort of the unraveling process for me. And it was just, and then it just kept on hitting one issue after another, after another. And I kept on finding you know, ideas and information I just had not heard before before I knew it, I had to sort of assess my faith as a whole and go like, well, what is actually going on here? What do I actually believe? And that was, you know, as you've said, that was actually quite terrifying. And, and there's something, it's not just Christian and it's not just American and or Western, um, that there's an ugly part of people that, that need, have, have at least a perceived need to look down on another group to make themselves... Mm-hmm. Uh, see, I, my my generation, John, I grew up in, you know, segregated schools, whites only, mm-hmm. you know, water fountains and bathrooms and, and got involved in the civil rights movement the same way. And yet I didn't see anybody else in my churches doing that, you know. Mm-hmm. It was like, uh, why are y'all, you know, these are, and not only what got me then particularly was, well, these people are talking about Jesus and stuff over here too. And y'all are saying, you know, they don't deserve the same uh Consideration. I can't imagine. Yeah, it, I can't it does imagine seem like a, when I try to yeah. tell my son, who's about eight or nine years younger than you, I try to explain to him. It almost seems like he's a you know some sort of fantasy novel because he can't imagine being in places where. It, but it, it was, and I know places where it's it's so much better, and I do think that uh, those those things have gone away. But yeah, it, it, for every generation, they begin to look and say, "Wow, yeah. you know." These people view things differently, whether it's sexuality or or their faith approach or whatever. And the first response from the um, traditional uh, folks that I know is to immediately attack and defend and what mm-hmm. they're doing. And it's, it's it seems to be a well, long, think- and it's a very old. Like I said, it's an ancient thing, and it's not just Western. It's in every culture because you can look at you can look at the, the the fights around the world and the ethnic cleansings and the the battles yeah. in, in, in India with the Sikhs and the Hindus and the Muslims. I mean, it's everywhere, but it, it is an odd human condition that we want to attack those things that are not a part of our... Yeah, it's interesting that we're we're horrified when it happens between two people groups we don't know very well, right? Right. Like, I think... So I was actually in Rwanda a few years ago, and I went to the memorial of the Rwandan genocide. And because... I don't know a ton about the Rwandan people, or I didn't. Um, the idea that there would be a, enough of a separation between the the um, the I mean I'm forgetting the the 
the Tutsi and the Hutus, right. I think, are the two people groups. It seems insane to me that the the disparity between those people groups was great enough to, to warrant, you know, or to cause that sort of level of genocide and, and horrific, you know, stuff that happened. Um, but, but we, you know, if we look at our own culture, our own history, we also have as a, as a, as a society, as a culture, as a nation, we have plenty of blood on our hands. And, um, with regards to the, the racial, you know, stuff, I, I don't, I don't think we fully dealt with that. Oh no, I don't I think mean, so. I, 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 I think that we still have deep, deep issues when it comes to race and I'm certainly not an expert on it. I don't, I, I, I don't claim to be, um, I, I just, I, I just look around and I'm listening and it seems to me that, that, there continues to be, um, it continues to be harder to grow up as a racial minority in the United States than it is to be white. Well, <laughs> well, there's no question. That's the simplest way I know how to say it, I guess. And at the same time, from you know somebody who's kind of lived through some of the history, I do see hope in that. I know I see your generation and younger if you ask them to describe somebody they worked with, they'd say he's tall before they would say he's black, right. which is a real shift. And I, and, and, and at least the attention on it, I, I, I mourn, you know, as an old guy, I mourn that we actually had much more vibrant and open discussions about race in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some challenges, but you could, you could talk and, and really debate and discuss things in, in an open way without anybody feeling as attacked as they do now if the issue it, it's just really weird how how divided the, the discussion has become more divided i think than the issues in some cases well i think I we're think missing leadership i, I think you're, the, the leadership of the civil rights movement understood i've talked to people who've been involved in some of the recent uh, Black Lives protests, I said, you know, you, you would you'd go to a protest and somebody like Dick Gregory would pull everybody together and take five minutes and say, okay, when you get arrested, do this. When they throw tear gas, right. do this. We're going to be here for four hours and then we're leaving, and we'll make our point. It 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 was it was uh, there was a, a vibrant understanding of here's how you do it, and that's that's how Dr. King did it. Dr. King didn't go and and I'm not just I'm not specifically calling it Black Lives Matters, other groups too, you don't go in and occupy someplace for a month because you get fatigue and all these other things. Um, but they're, they're, the leadership is dying out, that first generation of leaders, and we're starting to see some leaders pop up. But it is not to the to the uh, advantage of, you know, a largely white, affluent Congress to, um, to do anything to make things better. I mean, it, it, in the current, you know, the last, well, particularly the last administration, uh, their understanding for the back to the least of these was uh, they just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and you know, mm-hmm. like Dr. King said, that a lot of them don't have boots. Right. Yeah, I definitely. Whenever I approach this topic, I, I feel a little. I, I feel the weight of all the things I don't know, and I and all the experiences that are not mine, and and. So because of that, I, I tend to, 
as soon as these, you know, this particular topic comes up, I, I tend to go like looking for looking for voices that I can uh, listen to and elevate more, more than my own because I don't feel like I don't feel like this topic is one that I feel qualified or <laughs> to 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 competently speak on, um, I, and so I, I always I, I definitely try to look for. For people who have more lived experience and knowledge than than myself in in this uh, in this area. Well, Jose sure. Williams used to always say, "Talk to people who have gotten the stitches and and had the collarbones broken." You know, yeah, those are the people yeah. you talk to. And but the problem is, it's uh, there's a uh, a divide. I we're going to chase this rabbit too far. I'm going to back off this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're going too far on this one. Well, I think you. I think one thing that you did point out that is true is that bringing it back to this topic of sort of deconstruction here, I do think that there are a couple of specific issues that have caused people to question American evangelical Christianity. And those issues, as far as I see them, are um, the treatment of the, of the LGBTQ plus community and the, the continued racial problems that we have in the country. And, and, and certain groups' apparent unwillingness to face them, and then, and then also, just the election of Donald Trump was such a watershed moment, and the last, you know, the four years of his presidency, because we saw the same evangelical organizations that were so against Bill Clinton because of his uh, infidelity, and that would that would say that he, you know, that morality matters, that your, your personal character matters. You know, that's what evangelicals were saying at that time. Those same organizations uh, supported Trump, not just casually, but enthusiastically. And I think so many people saw that and were like, what in the hell? <laughs> oh, I, certainly I did. I mean, right? I, I just was stunned to see people that... Uh, are educated and I would have thought were as close to fundamentalists as you would get wearing MAGA hats and it just I'm just like uh, and look the 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 Clinton machine and all those things are something totally different well, I, but 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 a, a person I, who who got up and I mean from the from the two Corinthians thing to the guy knows no bottom and I'm not gonna turn this into a Trump thing but uh, but I could <laughs> Well, and, but and, the again, idea that like people that, get the devoted people who are devoted Bible reader fundamentalists even have come out so publicly in support of somebody, and and of course we both know. I mean, it's essentially over, um, you know, abortion and gun rights were the two things. But abortion was the one they rode the the horse they rode the whole way, and that that sort of was an issue created in the early '70s after Watergate to give the Republicans something to run on. Um, well, and and a lot of a lot of conservatives don't realize that there has been a conservative majority on the Supreme Court this entire time. Right. Since since Ro when Roe v. Wade was passed and since. And and so it's like if electing conservative judges was going to overturn Roe v. Wade, I mean, there's been the potentially the capacity for that this whole time. But most Supreme Court justices Supreme Supreme Court justices um, respect precedent, and and so 
it's like I do feel like the, the abortion thing has been this thing that's been the Supreme Court justices. If we nominate the right people, we'll, we'll eliminate abortion. I just feel like it's something that's been dangled in front of a lot of conservatives to manipulate them. But well, they've certainly been, um, they've taken a bite out of it. I mean, they've and yeah. And the the other concern, obviously, with the other judges is not just the Roe v. Wade, but all the other strange kind of. Uh, things that are, 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 are destroying our voting laws and, and um, uh, district, sure. redistricting yeah. around the country and stuff. Well, that kind of leads me a little bit of the question I was going to ask you. you know, you've talked about your, your journey to a new way of approaching spiritual things as gradual. Do you think it accelerated when you moved to California, when you were away from Nashville, or was that just you just moved to California and it happened during uh, that time? No, not really. I mean, I, I think that I think that it was a pretty natural process. I mean, like, if anything, I mean, like, California is not any more liberal than Canada, where I come from. So um, if, if you're talking about, like, sort of liberal, living in a more liberal sort of a place with more liberal politics. And plus, like, I live in actually a fairly conservative part of California. And so uh, I, I'm in, uh, like, uh, the northern part of San Diego. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's um, military so, country, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's, I, I definitely, like, my environment is not uh, not as liberal as you would necessarily think if you just heard, oh, he moved to California. <laughs> so. But you don't hear the same, I mean, in, in Nashville, and I've got really good friends there, and I've been to Nashville over the years and watched it grow, is if you move to Nashville and you go into a neighborhood, one of the first questions you're likely to hear is, where do you go to church? <laughs> yeah, I mean... I actually I get that here. As oh, well. okay. Wow. And and um, unexpected answer. And it's, it it's been interesting for me to just like it's been honestly kind of a relief to just be like, oh, you know what? I actually don't go to church. Uh, and then it's funny to see people sort of go like, oh, and then you know they kind of want to ask like, wait, so like, do you just not go to church or are you not a and like, but they don't know how to ask and I'm just like you can you can ask it's fine we can have this conversation if you want to it's not weird to me um I definitely feel like it, I've gotten to a place where like I I am not anti-Christianity I'm not anti-religion I do think that every society that's ever arisen has had a, an associated religion so it's obviously doing something um, I have some ideas about what that might be, but I, you know, I'm not an expert. I don't know. So I feel like I, I try to approach it with at least a measure of respect and, uh, and, and at the same time, you know, being honest about where I see areas of potential harm. And, um, it's, it's actually very tricky because I do think that when I was a Christian, I saw christianity as like something of an oppressed minority and <laughs> yeah, and you're that and i think a lot of christians feel that way and then if you step outside of it you see i'm like oh my gosh like christian like christianity is is what is in power in america and 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 it is the norm and it's only once you step outside that that you realize that. I mean, like, you can't be elected president without saying that you're a Christian. You know, the vast majority of Congress is Christian. Um, you know, now, some evangelicals would be like, well, well, you know, like, 
you know, Biden's a Catholic and not even a good one. Not so really Christian. Like, They're not really yeah, Christian. It's like, yeah, it's like, but then you have to get into the, you have to get into this whole like, oh, well, like, I'm not, you know, so-and-so is not a real Christian. Right. Uh, and it's like, yeah, it, it devolves pretty quickly. Back but, to the modifiers for Christian or, yeah, yeah. in some ways, because of your high profile, it was a, a bit like a pastor leaving the pulpit since you'd been making a living in the Christian industry for, for so long. Um, what kind of responses have you gotten? And, and are you been, have you been any surprises? Um, I mean, most of the people that know me personally have been very gracious. Um, anyone who's sort of come at me uh, aggressively has, has generally, with maybe a couple of exceptions, has generally been people that don't just don't know me. And so, you know, sort of make caricatures about me, say that, you know, I must be in sexual sin. And that's why I deconverted, <laughs> which is, which is, you know, like I'm happily married with two kids. Uh, I don't, I, it's my, you know, my life in that regard is about as vanilla as it gets. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely been stuff out there that's, strange and weird but um the vast majority of people that know me personally have been very gracious were you surprised by that i mean did you expect that kind of response um i don't know what i expected exactly i was grateful for it i mean i think there's been some natural distance put between myself and some of my christian friends since then um that's nobody's fault it's not malicious um i just think that when you have less in common you have less in common. <laughs> so, so I think that's to some degree a natural thing. And I, that sort of speaks to one of the functions that I think religion does is it, it, it adheres social groups. It allows people to have something in common that, that, that helps bring them together. And um, I see a lot of church communities that, uh, that have, you know, families that are very close to one another and support each other and i feel like that's a good thing and i feel like that's that's one of the benefits of being a part of a faith community and i mean quite honestly that's something that i miss um but there's just other other effects that i'm that i'm not really willing to deal with <laughs> so yeah that that idea of community is 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 the, the thing well you mentioned earlier your your interest in cameras what drew you to filmmaking i know you've been doing that for quite a while well it was kind of an accident um i just i i just started making things because the bands needed it and uh and then eventually got hired to do other other things and um then began to realize that wow i can actually make a pretty decent living doing this um and and maybe it would be easier to make a living doing this than it would be to make a living doing music and so um so that's the direction i ended up going in do you find a similar rhythm between music and filmmaking? Uh, sometimes I think when I'm creating a, 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 a like a, a a video piece, sometimes there's a there's a if I'm collaborating with someone, there's like a co-writing process that feels kind of familiar. Um, that collaborative effort feels kind of familiar from music, but but yeah, I mean, I I definitely feel like it's somewhat a related skill, yeah. Since you've sort of done a reboot on your spiritual approach, are there certain books, authors, uh, anything like that that have influenced you the most? Um, Why? Well, I, I mean, uh, an early one for me was Rob Bell, uh, Love Wins, who, you know, 
right? I mean, Rob definitely planted the idea in my mind that there might be ways of thinking about things other than the ones that I had. <laughs> um, so I think Rob Bell, um, there's a there's a book about humanity called Sapiens, which I always recommend to people by uh, uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Um, there's a book by Sasha Sagan called um, For Such Cre- for, uh, for Small Creatures Such As We. And that's about the power of rituals from a secular point of view. Um, and uh, what else What else would I recommend? What are you reading now? Um, what am I reading right now? I'm sort of, honestly, right now I'm reading the news with everything that's going on in Ukraine. Uh, so, <sighs> yeah, so, uh, so I, feel like, hmm. I, I feel like I'm just sitting and refreshing all the various sources on that instead of reading at the moment. So, yeah, it is a dark cloud. I mean, it, 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 it would not take too many, uh, miscues for us to be something, something much more serious than. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh you, you said you still read the Bible with sort of a different set of lenses now. Uh, yeah. Do you have any current spiritual practices you find helpful? Um, I mean, for me, I, I actually think the the boundary between psychology and spirituality is kind of a false one, and so I I see psychological stuff and spiritual stuff as being the same stuff essentially, and so um, I do some meditation. Um, I think meditation has been shown to be really helpful, both th- through experience and you know through study. Um, so I don't know exactly, like, I mean, some people consider that a spiritual practice. I sort of consider it a psychological one. Um, what but, kind of, what, again, what sort of meditation do you do? I mean, is there a particular um, kind of meditation you practice? Or? I like, I like doing guided meditations. Um, there's, I mean, I know that like different people have different feelings about him, but like Deepak Chopra has some interesting guided meditations that are free on YouTube. Um, I also really love uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, um, who actually passed away recently. He's mm-hmm. a, a Buddhist monk who's been pretty influential. He's quoted widely. 90s. Yeah, I see a lot of his. Yeah, he's he's amazing. Um, he wrote this book called The Art of Living that I that I really um, that I really love. I would recommend that one too. Um, his interviews with Oprah. If anyone's interested, go look go look at his interviews with Oprah. Um, the, so some of the stuff he said in those interviews is pretty powerful. So, um, yeah, he's he's he was a remarkable a remarkable person. Um, are you, you mentioned your podcast? Are you still doing it, or are you taking a break? Or? No, no, I kind of backed off and took a break. Um, I I I found that I needed it. I think for a period of time to have conversations, right. and I wanted to share that stuff, and then. Uh, you know, about halfway through last year, I just felt this need to to become a little bit more private. So I've ba- I've just backed way off on doing anything publicly. So great title, the wonder and mystery of being. That was a great title. There's some <laughs> good podcast there. What uh, what did you learn from the podcast other than how time consuming it is to do a podcast? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, oh gosh, I learned a ton. Um, I I really enjoyed talking to different different people um, who come from backgrounds that are different than mine either racially or um you know with orientation or gender um you know over the 
past couple of years, I've, I've made a lot of friends that, um, that look and live differently than I do. And I feel like that's made my life immensely richer and uh, approaching life through a much more pluralistic lens of, of letting people be themselves and embracing them for who they are, appreciating them for who they are and, and learning from them. Uh, I, I think, I just think it's a, it's been a shift when I was a Christian. I don't feel like I approached the world that way. And I, I do now. And I feel like that is an improvement, <laughs> but you know, I'm, I still have a lot to learn. Well, what's next? Are there any current or future projects people can expect to see that you're working on? No, <laughs> <laughs> nothing to plug. No, I, I have nothing to plug. Uh, and, and, I, I fully expect that uh, my presence in this uh, in this sort of dialogue will continue to just recede, and I'm just going to be an ordinary citizen, and I'm fine with that. Well, I'll, I'll keep watching your films. I'll look forward to that, and I uh, enjoyed talking to you, man. It was fun. Cool. I, it's always a Thanks, good time. Greg. Yeah. And that's it for this edition of the Thing God Podcast. Join me next time when my guest will be the amazing, wonderful Maggie Rowe, who returns to the podcast to talk about her new book, Easy Street. I'm thinking I do.